Good afternoon and welcome to the Court of Appeals. My name is John Tyson and on your panel today to my right is Judge John Arrowwood. To my left is Judge Allison Riggs. We have one case on the docket for oral argument today. Uh, in re matter of Eric R. Inhaber. Are there any preliminary matters to come before the court? No preliminary matters for the appellate time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, with nothing else, then we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. Members of the panel, my name is Chris Watford. I'm an attorney practicing in Winston-Salem with the firm of Surratt and Thompson, and I represent the appellant, Mr. Eric Inhaber, whose case is before the panel today. At this point, I would respectfully request a permission from the court to reserve five minutes of rebuttal time uh, for my argument. And if it please the panel, the matter before you, I want to note for your honors, that it involves two key questions that will seemingly appear multiple times throughout the argument today. The first point is that the trial court's inherent authority to discipline an attorney is not without the obligation or responsibility to ensure fundamental fairness. And the second point is that as of 415 on July 20th of 2022, Eric Inhaber, an attorney who handles mostly criminal traffic infractions, was under the belief he was attending Iredell County Admin Court for handling a speeding ticket. He was unaware that what the trial court had in mind at that time at 415 was to convert it to a civil hearing regarding a disciplinary sanction to be issued against my client, Mr. Inhaber, a sanction that essentially banned him from practicing in both Iredell and Alexander counties of District 22A for a period of the year and placing an order requiring him to seek reinstatement but specifying no conditions in which he would be allowed to remain or to be able to practice law again following that one-year ban that was imposed. Is your chief complaint was is the lack of notice? Lack of notice and the lack of a transcript specifically. Okay, uh, whose obligation is it to provide the transcript? Well, if it pleases the court, that's what's interesting about this case because in the typical appeal, you have before you a settled file number, you have documentary evidence, which was introduced at the hearing that was conducted, and you do have a transcript. And one of the things to note here, I believe, Your Honor, in another case, uh, emphasized to me that exercises of inherent authority are civil matters and not criminal matters. So our law actually provides the responsibility of recording proceedings with the district court. And I would ask the panel to note General Statute Chapter 7A, Section 198, that provides either for a live court reporter or an electronic recording of proceedings at all district court trial sessions. In reviewing that statute, I see no difference between a bench trial or a jury trial, and the statute even allows certain aspects or certain hearings in district court to not be recorded, such as 50Bs and 50Cs. So in terms of the responsibility to ensure a transcript and even earlier than that, an actual recording, the obligation is on the court to follow the statute to provide for that recording so that a neutral third-party transcriptionist can prepare that transcript for your honor's review. That would require the court to require us to hold this was a civil matter. If this was inherent within the trial judge's criminal jurisdiction, there is no transcription in criminal district court. That's correct, and I would refer the court to uh, 
Uh, the, I, the majority opinion in the Insray, in, in, forgive me the name, the Insray Insminger case uh, that was decided is actually in two segments. First, Insminger one and Insminger two. Specifically with Insminger one, I believe Your Honor wrote the opinion there, remanding the matter to Judge Blunt in Pitt County Civil Criminal Court. Uh, or pardon me, criminal court at that point, where the matter was tried both as a contempt action and a parallel inherent authority action. It was even prosecuted by the North Carolina State Bar. And that was in Superior Court where there is a transcript? It, it was, and that's why we don't have an issue with the transcript in that case. Uh, in the second installment, there was an appeal from the uh, resentencing hearing, as it was phrased by the Superior Court there. And part of the argument raised by the appellate that was rejected by the court was that if we originate as a criminal action, we should keep the criminal requirements for resentencing in place. And so that was rejected by the court, um, and Mr. Insminger's appeal was not successful under the basis that inherent authority rests in a civil matter, especially when it comes to discipline and an attorney. Remember, this wasn't ordering him to stay a night in the county jail. This was banning my client's ability to practice law in a district for a year. So I would contend to the court that the inherent authority, especially as it relates to attorney discipline, what an attorney can and cannot do as a professional, is indeed a civil matter. But if, but if, and this didn't happen here, and for anyone watching, I want to make clear, but if your client, the attorney, had cursed at the judge or done something such as that, he could have had inherent discipline could have held him in contempt, criminal contempt. He could have also inherently disciplined him, could he not, for something that happened in his presence right then, and then there wouldn't be a transcript. Well, I think that there would be a transcript if we treated it as a criminal contempt matter. There would also be, uh, at this point, some type of ability to contest that. Now, I know the amicus raises the issue I believe Your Honor is addressing, which is what is the distinction between immediate punishment under a civil inherent authority versus a criminal contempt type situation. And I think the facts are very different than those that are cited. My client takes no issue with the concept that a court has the ability to address matters in its presence that, require to that are required to maintain the decorum and functioning of the court. But we also contend to the court that as part of that inherent authority, this was not an emergent situation. In fact, the, the show, and of course we go back to the facts of the case, is that Mr. Insminger uh, was remarked for raising his voice in a disagreement with the district attorney who indicated that he was a liar, essentially. And so while we acknowledge the raised voice, we do not acknowledge nor concede that it disturbed court in Iredell County in any way. In fact, Mr. Inhaber was there during the morning session and was told to come back after lunch. So after the court's normal and customary two-hour lunch break, Mr. Inhaber returns at 2 o'clock. He then, according to his narration, waits another two hours and 15 minutes before, again, he's prepared at 4.15 to deal with the speeding ticket, the only one he had in Iredell County that day. And so he goes from being prepared to do a speeding ticket to being put on the spot to have to defend his professional livelihood. And so that is the part that notice begins to play and also the transcript and being able to preserve his rights for appellate review of an order that imposes this type of disciplinary sanction. Now, the trial judge on 
paragraph 16 and 17 of the order, and they're on page 15 and 16 of the yes. record, cites to uh, N. Ray Huntable, which is a Supreme Court case, um, and it's also mentioned in the Mikas brief. You did not cite the case, but it's the basis upon which the court found that it had the inherent authority to discipline attorneys. Well, and if it pleases the court, I don't know that, again, that's an issue that the court has the ability to discipline attorneys. The process would be how and where and what process would it be? Is it an instantaneous reaction, which this was not, to preserve some type of order in the court? Contempt and direct contempt would be more appropriate to assert that. But at the same point, if we look at those other cases which cite to that case, I'm referring to especially Couch, which has been cited in Key, that was cited in Innsminger, you know, we all kind of go back to that original decision. So the question of whether a court can do it is not an issue here. The question really is how the court did it here and the fact that no transcript was prepared for my client, the appellant, Mr. Inhaber, to argue the merits of the case is also the procedure of the case. Mr. I wouldn't Mr. Wofford, um, yes, Your Honor. first, in reading the order, I want to clarify my understanding. The order refers to incidents that happened on July 8th, but is it your position that these incidents did not take place in front of Judge Young? That's what, what you were getting at. You disputed that they were disruptive? No, and then this is where I think the issue of immediate addressing inner authority or contempt and the actual order begin to diverge. Because if we go from the standpoint, I think, shared by the amicus that raising voices causing a disturbance is enough to sustain the order, the order doesn't just talk about that. Instead, it goes back both two weeks to July 8th, again, recording events that my client disputes, and even goes back 20 years to reference a disciplinary opinion that was never introduced as part of any evidentiary record. So if it were just a order that handled the events of that day, we'd still have the same objections to that, but it's not the situation. It appears to build on 22 years worth of information that my client, based on his recollection, was never presented before the court. He does concede that he appeared in a meeting with Judge Young, and the date was roughly July 8th, but does not agree with the actual recitation in the findings. One of the things that... Let me ask you this. Um, do you agree that the trial court would have the inherent authority if adequate notice had been given to impose the sanction that was imposed? Is that within the range of discretion that a judge would inherently have? It potentially is. And if Your Honor would let me kind of explain the qualification there. In surveying the type of law and the type of decisions this court and the Supreme Court has dealt with with inherent authority, there's not been a situation exactly like this. I keep citing back to my Ray, you know, my Ray Inzmiger case, though I have trouble pronouncing it with a dry mouth, but that was a situation like Robinson, like Key, where you had contempt orders or, or motions to show cause, which outlined exactly what the individual who was subject to inherent authority would be answering to. In fact, the Insminger 1 case was actually prosecuted by the North Carolina State Bar using the same requirements under the administrative code that are used to determine whether a sentence or a sanction 
is reasonable. Here, if you equate the sentence or the sanction as a one-year suspension, and again, my client prefers to classify this as a total ban of practice for a year in any court whatsoever in this judicial district, then I believe the finding of misrepresentation might be sufficient for that. But again, part of the problem that we have in the absence of a transcript is before you get to the disciplinary sanction, like, like in Couch, you have to also make sure that competent evidence is in the record to support the findings of fact, and the findings of fact, again, support the conclusions of law. So in this case, there well, was- if there isn't a transcript in their case law that says that if there's no transcript, that we will assume that there's evidence to support the findings before the court. And again, that, that, is, that helps me to demonstrate the prejudice required uh, as it comes to the fact that a transcript was not prepared. And again, the transcript was not prepared because a recording was not ordered or facilitated by the trial court through no fault of Mr. Inhaber in that matter. And I might add, it makes it very difficult as an appellate advocate to come into a case with no record, no transcript, and to figure out what happened. I would refer So assume, though, that there's an incident that happens, and I'll follow on Judge Arrowwood's hypothetical, Sir. that it happens in front of the judge, and the judge witnesses it, but it's a proceeding in front of the district court that isn't regularly transcribed. There's just, there, there's nothing we, anyone can do about the fact that that moment when that incident happens, is, is it your client's position that at that point the district court judge would essentially not be able to exercise his or her inherent power to discipline attorneys if something like that happened? Well, thank you for your question, because this gets at the root of the distinction here. You know, if we look at state versus land, which has been cited uh, by the amicus, <coughs> I practice in front of Judge Puckett on a regular basis, so I know how she conducts her court. But you had a defendant who, like in a civil case, can be cursing, shouting things at the judge, a court full, a gallery full of people, of course, that type of disorder is very serious. And so in terms of the inherent authority, I see nothing stopping a district court judge from ordering the bailiff to remove that person, to remove the distraction, to remove the disturbance. That is an action the court can take and I believe is justified. Now, the difference between that action to keep this hothead from riling up the entire courtroom from a professional sanction of a suspension of the right to practice law or a ban of the ability to practice law in certain districts are two very different sanctions and two very different functions. They may be kind of grouped together under inherent authority, but the difference is a matter of degree. We talked about taking this man's ability to practice law to make a living, at least in these two districts, and banning it for a year. He's not the kind of individual who was cursing, yelling, and kept coming back like the defendant did at Judge Puckett. Apparently, there were raised voices in the morning and hours later following the lunch break and the successful conclusion of administrative court, then the matter was transformed into, again, what I contend is a civil trial, a bench trial nonetheless, to determine what type of professional sanction to place on my clients. Mr. Wofford, let me direct you on page 17 of the record, going back to the judge's order, on uh, finding of fact 26. Um, do you agree that findings of fact are bounding on, a, on, on this court? And um, if, if they're not objected to, um, they're conclusive. 
Well, in general I do, but again, if Your Honor would permit me to explain the qualification to that, at this point, part of the problem in appealing any order, and I do quite a few juvenile orders where they, the record and the transcript are very important uh, to this court's analysis, part of the issue that you have here is there is nothing which I can use a good faith basis to say, here is where finding is not supported. Now, also in the brief, or are you disputing the trial court found, I'm going to read it, <laughs> this response behavior, which has taken place largely in front of the court or otherwise immediately outside the courtroom where the court was presiding amounts to unprofessional conduct within the meaning of the rules of professional conduct. Your Honor, are, in all are we bound by that finding? Well, in all candor, we, we do. We do. In fact, the administrative court setting is in the same building in Iredell County but based on my client's understanding of the incident, he was not uh, approached. Quote, he was cautioned. You know, it's just he was told to, to calm down by a third party, and he did. Well, now there's another finding that another assistant DA had to leave court to intervene. So that's another finding that's in the order as well. And again, that's something my client disputes. He does not remember another district attorney coming into the room where he was conversing, albeit in a loud manner with Assistant District Attorney Rushton. Okay, again, I'm, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just trying to, to determine the effect of these findings in the order, which if they're not contested, we're bound by those. Certainly. Well, and, and, and again, I appreciate Your Honor's point. One of the things that I did, and if you look at Roman numeral two of the argument, and also I believe it's Roman numeral one C2, this brings up the problem of prejudice of the transcript. At this point, for me to be able to challenge these findings, I have to have a reasonable basis for which to do that. Now, I know we've gotten away from the assignments of error that has to be very technical, very specific, and we've gone with the issues on appeal. But within that brief, the appellant does challenge essentially every finding of fact because it cannot be supported by a record because no transcript was ever prepared, even though it could have been as a result of the fact the court never recorded the hearing pursuant to statute. So in terms of that, it's kind of a unique position, but how can an order be sustained based on the record when there's no record? If that's the case, just the court can enter an order and it automatically stands on its own. So in terms of the prejudice argument that I had to make pursuant to State versus King, States versus Hobbs, and Ray Shackelford, the, the argument was implicitly every single finding was challenged. And in my second argument, in the alternative to the transcript argument, I also asked the court to reverse the order because on this record, there is no way to show any type of support for the findings of fact, and therefore if the findings of fact are not supported by competent evidence in the record, then the conclusions of law were not either. And so for that matter, we asked for a vacating of the order and to remand the matter back to the trial court. Mr. Watford, if we disagree with you about the obligation of the district court to create a transcript and, and we're relying on your client's narration, is there still a way uh, forward for your client? That is, is there an argument that the narration gives us sufficient grounds to be able to review this matter um, the way you want us to review it? Well, and I think the, the issue presents more of a threshold problem in that, again, pursuant to the precedent that we work on here, if we're raising the claim of the absence of a transcript, 
as a bar to meaningful appellate review, which is what our principal argument here is, appellate review on findings of fact, sufficiency of evidence, as well as notice, and potential judicial recusal, then at this point, we have to look, one of the questions is whether or not it is sufficient. And I would contend that Mr. Inhaber, months after this, did the best he could to try to create that summary. And there is a, there's a duty on myself as appellant to try to engage the other parties to create a record or to try to recreate the testimony. And the record here shows that I tried. I tried to go through official channels with respect to the DA's office since two of those district attorneys were named as witnesses. I don't see it as a state function because if we're talking about a civil matter, they're just like any civil witness prepared to testify against my client. And I even approached the trial judge, which was an interesting way, but I think I had to do that uh, as part of that. There was initial indication he was willing to cooperate. And then a couple of days later, I got back from his judicial assistant, everything in the orders, what, what I remember. And, and so that's where it stopped. So I did meet, reach out and make those efforts. But even then, I think we have several issues, I think which your honors have clued in on today, that do have considerable disagreement, for which the only adequate solution to address the issue is to have a neutral third-party transcript prepared from a recording of the proceedings. On the issue of notice in particular, now it's not a finding of fact per se, but it's in the court's introductory language about after giving notice, the narrative says no, had no idea. I was there to handle a speeding ticket. So to resolve that issue, I don't know what else we could do except for seek out a neutral third-party transcriptionist that can provide us the verbatim course of how this hearing unfolded. Well, one thing that I did not see in your narration is whether anyone was sworn, whether anything was handed up to the court, anything like that. And did your client not have some obligation to tell us if there were, if any of these folks were sworn or if anything? I mean, that should have been within their inherent memory, although clearly this is probably a, I will grant you a stressful thing for your client that may not be able to remember verbatim what was said, but shouldn't they have at least been able to remember whether or not any of these people were sworn? He says he wasn't sworn, as mm -hmm. I recall. Well, and, that, and that's correct. And I mean, it, it was a situation that he was put on the spot again. The impression was I'm here to handle a speeding ticket. The court might have been mad at me. It's made me sit for two and a half hours while everybody else has had their cases resolved. Again, this was never meant to, never in a million years did he believe that he was going to have to defend his ability to practice law. In the narrative, he does mention, and, and I'll stand to correction from your honor, but I did mention that the two ADAs who allegedly offered testimony that was finding uh, mentioned that they were not, no witnesses were sworn. And so that no witnesses were sworn would include the district attorneys that were referenced in the trial court order. Also in the narration, there is mention that the court never took judicial notice of any type of documents, nor were any documents presented to the court. And this was problematic because there's extensive findings at the beginning of the trial court's order of discipline that talk about a disciplinary order from the DHC 20 years prior in Mr. Inhaber's career. Now, if judicial notice was not requested, that wasn't presented, and it wasn't the subject of any testimony, I, I don't know how that matter was before the court. Mr. Watford, do you know uh, who prepared the order? No, I do not. 
Just to clarify, on um, page 44, the narration, it says, in Haber does not recollect that any of the three assistant district attorneys who did speak before the court were placed under oath. You, you're saying that means they were not. Uh, well, it does, and then part of the problem with constructing the narrative, again, with memories that are there, is you don't want to say something that's wrong. So if a transcript were produced and there was that colloquy between a clerk and the DA, well, then at that point, I'm wrong. I can't say these witnesses were not sworn. So I think that's just, again, a good faith attempt to try not to overspeak yourself in these type of represent representations to the court. I think when I used to try cases on a, on a regular basis, um, there was the case you tried, the one you thought you tried, and the one you ended up trying, the one you should have tried. And so memories can be flexible in that, and they're not perfect. But that was his recollection, to the best of his knowledge, that no witnesses were sworn. How do, we, um, how do we balance the court's inherent right, which you've acknowledged, to control and discipline attorneys appearing before it, and with the rights of the party? And specifically, would you agree that attorneys can be held to a higher standard of conduct as officers of the court as opposed to the public or defendant generally. You sure. agree with that? I, I do, and in taking the last court first, I think we, we better be judged by a higher standard. Likewise, the actions of the court in observing statutory requirements also need to be afforded that high degree of deference and importance. Uh, with respect to the balance, I think this strikes at the very core. If inherent authority of a court is to maintain order to preserve the proceedings, the nature, and the integrity of the court proceedings, there is no better way than to follow the examples of Enre Ensminger, said correctly this time, Key, Robinson, and provide for that advance notice. Do a show cause order. Give notice of why you're being called before the court and what the possible remedies are or what the sanctions would be. Allow someone a chance to defend themselves. Use those same higher standards and import those to those that are accused. In the end, Mr. Inhaber will have to answer to the court for his conduct, but at least he can be prepared and ready to meet the challenge. And I see uh, I'm already into my rebuttal time, so if your honors would have any more questions. Thank you. Thank you. I'll reserve the rest we'll, of my time for rebuttal. We'll, we'll preserve the rest of your time for rebuttal, Mr. Ward. Thank you. Uh, we're here from Amicus at this time, and uh, we'd like to express appreciation for counsel's willingness to step up and serve in this capacity, and uh, it's always nice for both sides to be presented. Thank you, Your Honors, and I appreciate uh, the court having me. It's interesting issues that we've waded through here, and I've um, found it very interesting and meaningful, so thank you for this. Let's start with the last question. Um, how do we balance the court's inherent power to maintain discipline over its proceedings and over attorneys generally is with the attorney's right to have notice and an opportunity to defend against whatever accusations are being made. Your Honor, I think the balance is struck in the standard itself, which is it does have to be substantially contemporaneous if it's you're addressing the things that are in front of you. Um, I forget the full quote, but, but it's the, the standard is it's got to be something that's 
disruptive, something that uh, is, uh, the court needs to address right then uh, in order to protect the proceedings. Um, so there are some boundaries there. It's hard to really put more meat on those bones, though, because every situation is different, right? Uh, you can come up with hypotheticals that clearly can wait for later and notice an opportunity to be heard at a later date, and you can come up with uh, the extreme opposite end where there's clearly a need to do it right then and there. Um, and so I think that there's a standard that's specific enough that provides those guideposts, but then still general enough so that it gives trial courts the needed flexibility when they, you know, when they are trying to confront a situation the best they can. Does it extend to third parties? I'm sorry. I didn't Does the that. court inherit authority to discipline? Does it extend to the attorney's conduct with third parties and not with the court itself? I think if it's done in the presence, in the general presence of the court, yes, Your Honor. If it affects the proceedings in a way that the court, in his or her discretion, needs to address it then and there, then, then that needs then that is something that's within the court's inherent authority. Yes, sir. Next door? I'm sorry? Different, different room next door? You know, that gets into what's, what's within the court's presence. That day there's an, uh, a criminal traffic uh, session. We all can conjure up images of what that generally looks like. I mean, there's done. a lot of moving parts. Uh, there's a lot of people involved, not, not even legal professionals, but there's a lot of people there that are pro se. There's people that are coordinating things. There's ADAs that are running about doing all sorts of different things. And then you have the hapless judge who's trying to orchestrate and control it all. So I think in that scenario, yes, potentially something that's next door or out in the hallway could be, generally speaking, within the presence of the court. Mr. Armstrong, first of all, thank you for doing this for us. And um, my questions, we're talking about inherent authority and immediacy. And my question is, isn't immediacy and inherent authority you talk about the criminal cases a lot, and why is this not more like a civil contempt or something such as that? Because it's not as if uh, the appellant said something to him and he immediately said something. He, the order goes on about a plethora of things that happened over time, sure. including a previous discipline, and also it didn't happen it didn't happen in the morning when supposedly the, the final straw happened. It's, well, come back and we'll see you at the end of the day. And there was no, according to everything we have, there was no notice given that it was going to be, I'll see you at the end of the day to talk about whether or not you're going to practice law here for the next year. Yes, so sir. why doesn't that go back and kick this into a civil, more of a civil analysis with that time frame? Sure. Well, I'll give both the short and the long answer. The short answer is this isn't civil contempt or, for that matter, criminal contempt because the judge chose to use his inherent authority instead. So we're just going based on what the order says. Whether or not he had to opt for a contempt option rather than an inherent authority option, I don't think there's any law. I don't think the appellant has provided any law to suggest that he was that he had to do contempt instead of his inherent authority. I think those are just different diverging options. But I'm, and I'm... Sure. I'm not saying that he, the premise of my question wasn't that he had to use civil contempt. My question is the hypothetical about notice and what notice is required to exercise his inherent authority. Isn't it more in the civil range as opposed to the criminal range in this particular case 
where it's a plethora of things that happen over time? I think that it may well could be if the things that happened before that day are necessary to uphold that order. I will concede that if the, the order is based solely on things that happened 20 years ago or some disciplinary, you know, before the state bar or whatever, and the judge just shows up that day and decides to, you know, uh, do a, uh, invoke his inherent authority to punish, then I would say that that is not something, whether it's civil contempt or inherent authority, that's not something you should be able to do without, uh, it's probably improper anyway, but certainly without notice, without advance notice. And I think there's a distinction there to make. My contention is that all that stuff is really superfluous. It, 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 the question is, can the court's order stand just based on what happened in the court's presence? Uh, and if the answer to that's yes, then all the stuff and all the so-called findings and whatever that put in there about stuff that happened before, it really doesn't matter because whether it's in there or not, the order can stand on its own based upon stuff that happened in the courtroom that day. Well, counsel. Go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, my, my question is only then, if, if we would limit to what the judge actually occurred, mm -hmm. would we then review whether or not the sanction imposed was appropriate for the conduct that the judge actually saw? No, I don't, I don't think so. One, because I don't think that's a contention that's been raised uh, by the appellant. I think their argument is just due process issues, really lack of notice, lack of ability to retain counsel and so forth. Uh, and, and then this transcript issue, which I'll get to. So I don't think that's an issue on appeal, um, but, but even so, I would say that's, it's sort of like reviewing uh, not whether to sanction, but the level of sanctions. And there's a whole body of case law that talks about the level of sanctions is a discretionary decision. A judge is afforded wide discretion when it comes to the level, the appropriateness of the, the punishment in this case. Um, so I don't think that's something, I think if there's an issue, Judge, it would be a due process issue. And they, they've sort of avoided that term here and there, and they've, they've mentioned it um, uh, on the side occasionally. Uh, I pointed out in our brief, my brief, that that really wasn't mentioned much at all in their main brief. But if there is a due process issue, it's not been preserved. I mean, you, you read the narration, there's nothing in there that says that Mr. Inhaber uh, objected, uh, to the proceedings the way they were done, objected to lack of advance notice, uh, did anything to ask for more time, move to continue so that he could retain counsel, uh, do anything at all to preserve any due process issue that's now before the court. And there's a lot of law, I cited to one case, there's a lot of it out there that talks about even constitutional issues like due process, you have to preserve those at the trial level to, to raise them on appeal. Um, Judge, Riggs, Judge Riggs had a question. And yes. I, I may want to get back to this topic, but I want to follow up a question that Judge Tyson asked. In your brief, and just now, you talked about superfluous facts, that is, the, the findings that related to behavior either that didn't happen in front of the judge or that happened before July 20th. I think in your brief, you say everything that didn't happen on July 20th was superfluous. Help me walk through the order and figure out then what is what is it, like, what is, what's the ultimate conclusion that this, not just the degree of the remedy or the discretion used in applying the particular punishment, but that punishment was warranted? Because I see a bunch that are talking about July 8th, and I'm not able, I'm struggling to figure out what the judge saw. He says, 
it largely happened in front of the court, but I, you know, if, if that's true and they're superfluous, sorry, I ought to be able to cross them out in draft and then just have enough facts to lead me, findings of fact to lead me to the conclusion. So can you help me through that exercise? Sure. Um, and some of these, uh, Judge Tyson's asked about already, but under the record, the order, I've got it, uh, page four of the record, but it's findings, I call them findings, but paragraph seven and eight, um, and then also 26. And 26, I think, is probably the most key one because it is the one that says that the disturbances, the behavior, were largely occurred in front of the court um, or otherwise immediately outside the courtroom where the court was presiding. Um, and I think that in and of itself is enough. And again, what we're dealing with here is not the ideal. Obviously, the ideal is you have a recording, you have a court reporter, you have a, a you know, a much a more lengthy order that, that details every single thing that happened in court that day. What we're dealing with is the minimal constitutional threshold. And so when the court says that Mr. Inhaver's behavior, disruptive behavior took place largely in front of the court, uh, and then you couple that with more specifics in findings seven and eight about what happened, not just what happened, but sort of the effect of it, which is I think even more key. The effect of it, as one of your honors pointed out, is that one, more than one assistant DA was, had to, had to step aside what they were doing. And again, we know what happens in district criminal court um, to, to, to deal with this protracted and heated argument. So this isn't just a one or two minute thing, no big deal, move on. This is protracted. It specifically said that in paragraph seven. Um, and then the consequences of that are described more so in paragraph eight. So I think you combine those three uh, and there may be others that talk about uh, what happened that day specifically, but I think those are three key ones. I think there is enough to, to uphold what is, again, a discretionary thing, which is invoking inherent authority to control the proceedings in front of them. Well, um, I want to go to paragraph 26, which you uh, reference, yes, sir. where it says the respondent's behavior, and that doesn't behavior here, I don't think, well, explain to me how that only affects this one day when we've had several pages of discussions about what the court contends he's done on numerous occasions. So why doesn't behavior modify all of that as opposed to, it doesn't say the behavior on the 20th, doesn't say, so I'm just asking how, how do you say that that's, that you can X out all the other to get to sure. behavior um, I think it does take connecting a couple of dots, but if you read that sentence, it says the respondent's behavior, which is largely taking place in front of the court or otherwise immediately outside the courtroom, and then you look earlier, for example, to those paragraphs I pointed to, the only conduct described in the order that took place in the court's presence that day, um, or that took place in the largely took place in front of the court or immediately in, in, in the court's presence um, was the loud disruptive argument, the protracted and heated uh, loud argument. So it's, it's connecting this to that because it's sort of built in from one place to the other in the order. I, obviously, it would have been better to, to define in paragraph 26 what respondent's behavior is referring to, but I think you can do that just based on, you know, uh, connecting those dots, if that makes any sense. We're, going, 
We don't know who drafted this order, is that correct? We don't know if the court drafted it. We don't know if the DA's office drafted it. I, I, do, I do not, no. I don't well, think there's anywhere in the record that indicates that, that. we don't know that based upon this record. Correct. If we strip everything out that the court did not observe or that occurred in its presence or immediately adjacent, and we're left with seven and eight and 26. Does that justify a one-year suspension from the practice of law? I think it can. I think the level, the amount of time that, that and the fact that this happened twice, not once, I believe it was said, multiple times. Um, it had to have been substantial for three assistant DAs one way or another through the course of that to become involved in it. Um, again, ideally, we'd have more information in here, but I think it meets the minimum uh, threshold. It is an abuse of discretion standard, right? I think so. It's a it's exercise of inherent authority is a discretionary thing, so I think you're reviewing a judge's discretion. Is there not also a proportionality standard as well? Proportionality of, I'm sorry, your Conduct honor. to sanctions. Sure. I think, again, I think if that was an issue that was challenged on appeal, um, I think that that can be, but I think that's also discretionary. I had uh, asked you, uh, I derailed you from our dis the discussion of due process earlier um, and wanted to let you get back to that. But specifically, assuming we disagree and we believe these questions of due process have been preserved, I want to understand, I think you've alluded to that they, they exist, that there's concerns when you're going back 10 years, 20 years, whatnot. How, in this case, how do you think do, the due process require, if, if you believe there are due process limitations on this, how do you believe they were met on the record that we have in, uh, for Mr. Inhaber? Sure, well, I think the primary one that was identified was notice. So if you look at um, the, the narration, what it actually says is that notice of the hearing was not provided. But see, that's not, that's not the issue. Really, when you're dealing with due process, what you're talking about is notice of the conduct, the bad conduct you're accused of doing. Well, it says he was under the impression that he was there to handle a speeding matter, which to me says there was a notice that he needed to be there, but because we don't have a transcript, at least in his narration, Mr. Inhaber is saying, this is what I thought the content of the notice told me, is that it was not related to a disciplinary action. Sure. So, so the narration, it, it talks about you know, what happened that morning, break for lunch, come back. There's a generic statement about the judge saying he'll take up the Inhaber matter uh, later. But there's, and then you look at the order and the order says at the very beginning, this is uh, record page two, and I think it's at the very top that there was, uh, yes, the precatory paragraph, the last sentence, after giving notice to the respondent and affording respondent an opportunity to be heard. So, if you really look closely at the narration and at their brief, what they're saying is he didn't get advance notice. He didn't know before the hearing was 
initiated uh, that he would be addressing his conduct versus the, his uh, case. Um, but I would argue is that advance notice in this situation is not required because, again, the standard is no advance notice is required under due process standards if you're addressing something that's needs to be addressed in the immediate vicinity of the court. It can't, in other words, it can't wait to provide formal notice. Again, put ourselves in the shoes of this judge. He's in this uh, criminal traffic proceeding. He's doing the best he can to juggle lots of things. He doesn't have the time and the means to just stop everything, go and type up a formal notice, uh, you know, sign it. This was before Odyssey, you know, have it formally served on Mr. Inhaber. We're going to schedule work with court staff to schedule it for another day. I mean, he just doesn't have the luxury of doing all of that. And so what I would say is that notice was provided, as the order said, just not advanced notice. And there's nothing in the narration to say that notice wasn't provided at least as the, as the hearing was initiated, as it started. It's just not advanced notice that was provided at or before 2 o'clock that day. Well, question, uh, you were relying on this sentence that he says, you know, after giving notice to the respondent in 40. But up the sentence before, it sort of cuts against this is about what happened today because he says, after receiving multiple complaints against the respondent, the court conducted an inquiry. So this appears to me to say, this wasn't related to what happened before me this today. It's because of all these things. Why doesn't that cut this more into you could have a notice and you could, um, it could be like civil contempt as opposed to today I've got to deal with this right now. Yeah, I suppose your honor could read it that way, but that's inferring things in, in there that it says after receiving complaints, he initiated, initiated this inquiry. Nowhere in the order does it say uh, that regardless of what happened today, uh, the court finds that what happened before today is sufficient to do what I'm doing today, invoking inherent authority. And no, function. but the court goes on and talks at length. It does. You've pulled out. You've pulled out three findings that said you can strip everything else away. Most of those things you're stripping away are things that have happened before today, that, including some 20 years ago. It, it, that's absolutely right. That that is true. Um, I would sort of so I guess the question that Judge Airwood's asking, and I'm asking too, is it, a, is it a, a straw that broke the camel's back, or is it more of it's an immediate what was observed solely at that time on that date? I think the answer is we don't know because the judge doesn't tell us. Well, isn't that enough in and of itself to send it back? I don't think so, Your Honor, because I think that the court can take everything that's under the order and say, this is sufficient. Even if everything else isn't, this is sufficient because it's all in front of us. The judge doesn't say what he's prescribing more weight to. So 7, 8, and 26, disregard the rest of it, that's enough to sustain the order? In, in terms of yes. I, I mean, the, the other I would just look at and consider as background information. I, I would sort of, character, I would sort of um, analogize it to I, I'm more of a civil background when you have a summary judgment order or another type of order where you don't really, not really supposed to have findings of fact, but some judges do it anyway, and then what happens, it comes on appeal, and your honors say, you know, we don't, we, we don't ascribe any weight to these, these findings because they're not needed and they're not, they're not called for under the rule. Um, 
and they're not required for us to conduct our review. A smart trial judge will just label that as undisputed facts. That's right. Yes, sir. Um, but at the end of the day, even the ju smart judge who labels those as undisputed facts, the review by this court would be, is there a genuine issue of material fact, right? So the same, the, the same the analogy is, ultimately the review this court has, again, if there is preservation, is, is there enough here that a trial judge reasonably uh, exercises inherent authority? Maybe if we picked out some facts to the exclusion of others, it wouldn't be, but is there enough here, um, regardless of what actual weight was, was provided to some facts versus others, is there enough to sustain the ultimate exercise of discretion? And, um, and again, I, I don't shy away from the fact that the order could have been better drafted, uh, could have been more detailed, uh, but we're not here to, I guess, to establish best practices, we're here to say, did it meet minimum constitutional um, thresholds? And to that end, you'll notice. Do you agree that the trial judge's inherent authority to discipline uh, attorneys yes, sir. Is, is independent of and is parallel to the state bar? Uh, yes, that, in fact, the statute, I believe I put it in our, my brief, um, specifically says that the state bar's authority to discipline attorneys, the court does not have no, has no bearing. In other words, those are two independent things. The court can exercise its authority to punish just as the state bar can. Those are two independent entities. So a reference to the state bar or anything, that's not required by the trial judge. Trial judge or in, we can act on our own authority as well sure if we observe something in front of us and i hope you haven't today <laughs> <laughs> we have not so far <laughs> well i guess since you're here kind of defending the state and defending the trial judges um i'd like for you to kind of address why it's necessary for the judges to have that authority uh given the nature of the jobs that we have well, I think we, I don't need to remind anybody in this room, we serve uh, at the will of the public. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, that's why we have a state bar. That's why we're self-regulating. That's why um, the judiciary is given the authority it's given is because we have to be very careful that everything we do is in the best interest of the public and only the public. And that's, uh, that's ultimately what our judicial system is built on. Um, and so I think, although it would be well-intentioned, sort of second-guessing and, and trying to define the limits of what Judge Young could or couldn't have done that day is, the danger is it, it gets very close to if it doesn't wade into sort of micromanaging a situation, an atmosphere, all the nonverbal stuff that's going around that we just can't know because we weren't there. Um, it's a slippery slope. I think that unless there's something clear from the record that says that he exceeded his authority for one reason or another, uh, that's why the standard and that's why the application of it is the way it is uh, because nobody can see what's going on and control it more than the judge who's presiding there in the moment. And I think that's important to keep it that way, again, so that we protect the public and the administration of justice.
Can I ask another due process question? So we talked about notice. Um, I want to dive in a little bit deeper on the opportunity to be heard. I understand your argument that no advance, your argument is that no advance notice is required such that he showed up, they talked about at that beginning, that was the notice. If he were, and he, you know, it seems from the narration, Mr. Inhaber's position is he wasn't allowed to cross-examine witnesses and the ADA's, I don't know if testified is the right word, spoke in open court. And I'm wondering if, assuming for this discussion that do, the due process um, concerns are properly preserved, if there's, if it's your understanding or your argument that there's no opportunity to cross-examine witnesses, particularly when an incident that it seems could be heard in the courtroom and was disruptive of the courtroom, but nonetheless wasn't directly in front of the judge, whether that creates due process problems if Mr. Inhaber wasn't able to ask the ADA who was speaking to the court questions about the actual exchange. Sure. So as Your Honor, I think is well aware, due process or the process that's due is at its core whether someone has a meaningful opportunity to be heard. And in this case, what we have from Mr. Inhaber's narration is a 45-minute hearing where by all accounts he was given every opportunity to say whatever he wanted to say, um, to request to call witnesses and to present evidence if he wanted to. There's nothing in there that says he even requested to do any of those things or objected to the summary nature of the proceeding. Um, I think it is important to understand, too, that we are dealing with a legal professional who's, by all accounts, um, experienced when it comes to not just court proceedings but this particular kind in traffic court. And it's, we all know it's, it's common to request continuances to be able to hire counsel uh, for whatever reason. Uh, you, we all know you raise objections uh, to preserve them on the record. And so the opportunity to be heard was what he at the time agreed was an a reasonable opportunity to be heard. And he took advantage of it and he never questioned it. And so I think that right there is a good indication and we're dealing with a 45 minute hearing, not just a five minute discussion. Um, all of those things, I think we can say in this particular situation, Mr. Inhaber was provided a meaningful opportunity be, to be heard, and there's never been any indication that he believed otherwise, at least until there was an appeal. Um, so you're saying that any defect in notice could have been weighed by general appearance and failure to object? Yes. Uh, notice is one specific I guess, way that you can have a due process violation, but any due process violation has to be objected to at the time, uh, or, or yes, so if he, not preserved he, for appeal. If he had said, Judge, I'm not prepared to go forward, I had no notice of this, I'm not going to participate in this, you go ahead and proceed the way you want to, but I, I, I'm not prepared to move forward. That would have been a way to put an objection on the record? Correct. Well, I mean, you're at the point where you've got to make a decision right then where this man is saying he had he had no indication this was coming up. He thought he had a case that was being held over uh, regarding a third party. And, and I would say that what I'm not saying is that he had to object at the very beginning, but you've got 45 minutes, you're a trained legal professional. At some point, you would think that if he had any question or wanted to hire an attorney, I mean, he's not, he's not even done anything. There's nothing in the record to indicate what witness he would have called if he 
if he were given that opportunity or what evidence he would have presented if given that opportunity. So I think the totality of the circumstances, 45 minute hearing, nothing at any point during that where he's made an objection, requested a continuance. I think that is, is strong, a strong indication that there was a reasonable opportunity to be heard and he took advantage of it. I have one other question for you as you're running close to the time. Yes, sir. Um, the order talks about clear, cogent, and convincing evidence. If no one was sworn, how is there any evidence here? There's your question, Your Honor. There's there's uncontradicted evidence, and what I mean by that is, and again, I understand the, the panel's concern about prior things, but at least in terms of what happened that day, there's no dispute about what happened. I mean, Mr. Inhaber readily admits that he yelled, there was a disturbance, he apologized to the court for it. That, I mean, that was all in the narration. So you don't have to have a fact finder like a judge or a jury in that situation because there's no disputed fact. It's just we all agree this happened. Now let me, the judge, figure out what's the reasonable response to it. Um, Undis did that answer your honor's question? Undisputed facts. Undisputed facts. That's right. Undisputed facts. And so there is no, and that goes back to uh, Judge Riggs, your question, there's no need for you know, formal swearing of witnesses and cross-examination when you're not when you're not arguing about disputed fact. I mean that you, you, constitutionally, you have a right to uh, um, cross-examination in certain contexts. May I finish, Your Honor? Um, when there's disputed facts, because there's two different stories here. There's not two different stories. It's just what's the consequence for the for what everybody agrees happened that day. And what would you have the court to do? Uh, affirm the order, uh, Your Honor, um, but as I think has been conceded today, if there is, um, the court does determine that um, the order cannot be affirmed, that instead of a reversal, I think the appropriate action of the case law is a vacation and remand for a new hearing. Thank you. Anything else? Thank you. Rebuttal, Mr. Watson? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. In, in response, and certainly I do appreciate Amicus being able to wade into this very and highly unusual situation before us. It was four minutes when he. When I might, I might pause, Your Honor. Yeah, just a moment. Um, he has four minutes. There you go. Okay, go ahead and proceed. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, if it pleases the court and it pleases the panel, I think one of the key issues here is we've got to understand what actually happened here. It wasn't that Mr. Inhaber was before Judge Young being disrespectful and had to be removed from the courtroom. This was a situation where the trial court, as it says in its order, decided to address Mr. Inhaber's ability to practice law in a disciplinary fashion. That's what this inherent authority exercise was. It was not an immediate remedy to restore order in the courtroom. Never was. Mr. Inhaber was called in on the spot and directed to defend himself against unknown allegations at that point. 
when we look at that core, and I think that which should guide the court's analysis, we are not talking about criminal contempt, direct contempt. We're talking about a professional disciplinary order, which if you look at the form of the order, may recall some forms that you have reviewed from the DHC in the past. Perhaps that's where that clear cogent and convincing evidence standard might have been borrowed from the trial court. That's the standard at the Disciplinary Hearing Commission. The core of this case is about one lawyer being able to confront essentially the charges and accusers against him before he's stripped of his right to practice law in the way he chooses to practice law. Not just an admin court, but every single court in District 22A. As we look at other concerns that are here, another item addressed by the court was the actual sanction. Now in our argument, we contend that the lack of a transcript eviscerates the ability to challenge findings of fact and conclusions of law. Without findings of fact and conclusions of law, the sanction cannot be sustained. We would note that the order includes very damning information about my client, about what he said, misrepresentations, and even references to his lack of competence from the trial court. I believe practically we would love to see those findings stripped, but we don't know how you parse and parcel that entire order. Many of the questions you ask amicus center around, well, what was, the, what was the trial judge thinking or what was he using? We don't know because there was not a recording where we can point to certain pieces of evidence to say here's what builds the inference that we can use to understand the text of these findings in the context of the order. It just simply does not exist. Inherent authority is, is an interesting concept in our law, especially when it's used like this. Go back to the key case, Robinson, and even my favorite, Insminger. These cases are used in a very similar way and structure to matters that would normally be referred to the Disciplinary Hearings Commission. In fact, many of them use the same requirements of the administrative code to be able to determine if a sanction is appropriate. And here, if the court does part and parcel instead of remand wholesale for a new hearing, then I think with the misrepresentation component of the order removed, it would be very hard to justify a suspension or a ban of practicing law for a year and square that with a loud heating argument to try to defend one's reputation. We would ask the court ideally to reverse the order, but would certainly accept a order from this court vacating the order and remanding for those appropriate basic fundamental protections. We thank the court for its time. Thank you, Mr. Watford. I neglected earlier on to introduce members of the staff who are here in court, and I apologize for that. Our clerk today is Ms. Delina McEssie, and our court marshal today is Officer Richard Vermilliard. Our clerk of court, Gene Soar, is also with us in, in the uh, courtroom today. So, um, wanted to be sure and recognize them as well. Okay, I guess, uh, Madam Clerk, will you adjourn, adjourn court?